0: Welcome to Fighting for the Underdog, the podcast that follows the tales of compassion and bravery of animal rights activists all over the world. My name is Hannah Grant and I'm the Administrative Assistant and Social Outreach Director at the Animal Law Firm. I will be taking over as a guest host for our lead attorney and founder Christina Bergson in order to create more content for our lovely viewers. As I interviewed these amazing people, I was truly inspired by the common theme of hope that they give to underdogs everywhere. They taught me that sometimes the greatest power an underdog possesses is never giving up hope. Hi everybody, thanks for joining us. Today we have Dr. Jeff Young, founder of Planned Pethood International. Their mission is to end economic euthanasia and significantly reduce pet overpopulation and suffering of companion animals by offering affordable common sense veterinary medicine to everyone. Thanks for being our guest today, Dr. Young.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Yeah, of course. Well, let's just dive right in then. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your organization and what you do?
1: Well, I mean, I think, I mean, we're a nonprofit now. uh, I, I had Planned Parenthood Plus, which was a for-profit for years, and then we kind of slowly switched over to 100% nonprofit. We kind of worked for-profit nonprofit together for a while, and then just decided to go 100% nonprofit. But um, bottom line is, I've been doing uh, international international lecturing and uh, surgical demonstrations for God, uh, 25 years or so. Um, there's a real need, obviously, around the world for just basic health care with uh, animals and for people. But uh, in America, when I first graduated in 1989, we were killing 24 to 26 million animals, dogs and cats a year from overpopulation. So right. we've made great strides. You know, uh, Humane societies will say we're down the two million three million I think it's probably more like four or six but either way it's a lot less than it used to be I think a lot of the animals that are being euthanized now it's more because of economic reasons and not uh, necessarily from overpopulation directly
0: okay gotcha yeah I'm it's a really important cause that you're fighting for and I think it's it's really cool how did you come up with the name and get the organization started what was the process for that like
1: well, I worked animal control when I was in vet school, and I mean, I went into vet school as a hunter and trapper, and you know, I killed my first deer when I, you know when I was ten years old in the woods by myself with a with a high-powered rifle. And I look at my grandkids now who are. A lot older than 10, and I'm thinking like, okay, I would never turn them loose in the woods with a rifle.
0: Uh, <laughs>
1: so times have changed, I, you know, and uh, society moves forward, and I'm not necessarily proud of some of the things I've done in the past. Uh, at the same time, that was what we did. That's how we were raised. I was, you know, as a military brat, uh, raised on military bases, and, uh, and in the end, I think I just... I, Oh, vet school really opens eyes to me and, and I don't understand why it doesn't do more to other doctors because you know we're too much I think we're, we're taught to kind of distance ourselves or not be involved emotionally I don't know how you can be when when we're taught that things you know animals feel pain the same way we do they are you know they're sentient creatures you know and and, and growing up I mean I was pretty much told you know animals don't feel pain and you know they don't really think and they're just you know they're more this cart kind of, you know, uh, view of, of animals. And and we you know, that's just not true, you know, and, it, and it's a real predicament for our profession, if you think about it, because, you know, you have the large animal producers that just do horrible atrocities, and they basically police themselves. And then we have people who think their dog and cat is part of their family, something like 76% of people consider their dog part of their family. Um, and having said that, you know, do they have $10,000 to fix a broken leg, you know, um, there's just realities to life, and, and I don't, I don't you know the balance, is, we're, we're schizophrenic when it comes to animals, you know, the things we allow uh, certain producers to do to animals, and then certain things that we demand from veterinarians that for our own pets, um, is just dramatically different.
0: Mm-hmm, definitely, um, what made you want to go into vet school initially then?
1: I, I think, uh, you know, being a military brat, spending the summers on farms, you know, my grandparents had farms and I just I was always fascinated with the animals and um, I, did, I don't know, I did, from, the, from the time I can remember, I always wanted to be a vet, you know, and I, it was either that or, or going to the military, so, I mean, and I, and there was a long time there, I really thought about, you know, joining the service, and going to Special Forces, and, you know, going to Southeast Asia, and fighting, because that's what, you know, we were in the Vietnam War when I was graduating high school, but it was coming to the end, and, and I was really torn between the two, in all honesty, um, and my parents really thought, well, you know, you're, you're better off going to college, and going to war, so, uh, <laughs> So, and, and, and I mean, I always kind of I always wanted to be a vet. And if, even if I would have went to the military, my long term goal would have been to be a vet at some point.
0: Gotcha. OK, very cool. So what was what kind of made you shift your focus towards the cause of your organization? Then what was the I don't know, the it, starting point?
1: Yeah, it was it was good luck, bad luck, depending on how you say it. I mean, I ended up. um I met a young lady who was very much an animal activist and she kind of clued me into some things. And at some point in the state of Colorado, uh, they, there was a bill, it was an anti-pound seizure bill. And at that time in Colorado, uh, especially the Denver pound was notorious for red tagging animals. So basically they were selling animals for biomedical research. And if you think about it, it's like, well, you know, that's not such a bad thing if they're going to kill them anyway. You know, that's kind of the, the thinking, the mentality at the time. But the mm-hmm. truth is, you don't sell animals that aren't adoptable to biomedical research they want calm animals they want friendly animals so you know the animals that were being sold were ex animals that were highly adoptable and many times owned but they were they were rad tag put in the back and people never really saw them they never got to reclaim their own animal and it was a real shady deal um and that was uh, a bill came up and I testified, um, you know, to pass the bill, so pound seizure would end. I researched it on my own, and I thought that was the right thing to do uh, from an ethical and moral standpoint, and the the head of the veterinary research facility testified on the other side. uh, They lost. We won, and and, uh, at that point, I kind of became a pariah, a little bit of a pariah at at, at Colorado State. I still, I, I love Colorado State. Don't get me wrong, and they do amazing work, and I had a lot of professors that really uh I got along with very well but there was quite a few of the bureaucrats that that, that didn't like me too much after that
0: (laughs) I'm sure yeah um so what do you what would you say is is the overall goal of your organization what are you trying to accomplish I know I kind of prefaced it in my intro but if you could go a little more in depth that would be great
1: well, I think, you know, I mean, I personally have done over 185,000 animals uh, s- surgeries. So I've probably done more than anybody on the planet. I'm not a specialist in anything, but I do specialty surgeries all the time. and I'm quite good at them. You know? um, and I think I want to share some of that ability. You know, I mean, I've done it. I've worked in, I'm thinking about 42 countries, uh, done, lectured in numerous universities all around the world. And done surgical demonstrations and, and worked in a lot of places like Mexico and uh, Eastern Europe, and, and I think in the end, you know, like overpopulation was a big deal in in, in America, and I really concentrated on that. Less than name, Planned pethood and, and I, we were the first all, you know, for-profit clinic that requires spay and neuter every animal that came to our facility, and we've still stuck with that. And we're probably one of the few and nonprofits that still require that. Um, nothing gets adopted here. Nothing comes out of here unless it's fixed. You know, or you can go somewhere else. I don't need your business. Um, and so I still stand on that. But more and more, it's like, it's like, so many of the, you guys coming out of school are taught you refer everything, refer everything. Well, things can't be referred all the time because people don't have five and $10,000, you know? So, and over the last couple of years, economic euthanasia has been the biggest thing for me. Uh, while overpopulation is still a big problem around the world and in certain areas in, in America, certainly in the, in the Southeast and uh, certain reservations and things like that. So there's still a lot of need here in America, don't get me wrong. Uh, but I think economic euthanasia is, is surpassing seen overpopulation is the number one cause of death in this country you know and the uh, the average american has what four hundred dollars extra cash and you can't you can't get anything done for four hundred dollars in colorado i mean mm-hmm. it's ridiculous you know um and i'm sorry it's not that hard to do a band surgery on a knee for an animal that's under 75 pounds it's not that hard to do an fho it's not that hard to do a pu i mean the, the kind of things that we do on a regular basis that uh that I think every veterinarian should know how to do. And it would just save a lot of lives in the end. And I I really think one of our big burnout in this profession is the fact that, you know, good students go out and they get jobs and, um, you know, it's X, you have to do A, B, C, and D. And if they can't afford A, B, C, and D, then you just send them out and you don't do anything or you offer to euthanize the animal for $500 versus doing something for 5,000. And and I just always felt like there's got to be something in between there. There's got to be
0: something in between there. Yeah, so in the US specifically, are you trying to teach more widespread so that the price can be lowered for those surgeries? Is that the goal?
1: Yeah, it, we actually just bought a facility. Uh, the, uh, the facility we're in right now is owned by my for-profit co- uh, corporation, and we're selling it. And we we bought a place for the nonprofit. I have a board of directors. Uh, I can be fired now from my own company. That's okay. <laughs> but, you know, we bought a place up in Conifer. It's only about a 30-minute drive from where we're at right now. It's 12,000 square feet. And our goal is to take 6,000 of that and make it the most state-of-the-art, low-cost clinic in America. I mean, we're talking, you know, uh, CT scan and, uh, you know, all the latest and greatest toys. That, uh, and we right now, we, I've worked with students from six different universities. My goal is to make that 26 different universities. I want juniors and seniors to come out, see things, say, okay, this is what we have. We have seen some of the same equipment you have in your university. The difference is this is how we don't charge for it. And this is how we get away with it. Uh, you know, and this is how you can do things. And um the, the kids that have come through here have been real impressed with what we do you know and they say, well you know oh we hear that you know you you may have more of a sterility problem because you guys don't and i this a gown on everything And i said and one lady was just here from the university of florida uh I, she was here for 30 days i said now how many post-op complication did you see and how many bad infections did you say? I didn't see one I Said exactly and say you're always going to have animals that lick out sutures and stuff but i'm sorry we've taken human medicine we shifted over to the animals and animals aren't humans first off i've had multiple surgeries myself never once have i chewed out my sutures never <laughs> once have i licked my butt and then licked my sutures you know mm-hmm. never once have i done certain things that animals do on a regular basis so you know i think common sense goes a long way and i and, and i i'm all for I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't have a problem with, with, uh, you know, specialists and and we refer things out to specialists all the time, If people can afford it. I'm going to send them to a specialist, but you know, if people say I can't afford say a persistent rate aortic arch or a PDA heart surgery in a puppy, you know, they're they're quoted $10,000 and they go, well, uh, you know, I've only done a handful of them, but you know, I'll give it my best shot. At this point, we've done dozens and dozens and we have had, I think, two die out of literally dozens and dozens, which I don't think is that bad, you know? And then we're doing yeah. it for, you know, we're doing it for 800 or $1,200, you know? So mm-hmm. um, the animal goes back. The first, the first uh, PDA I did, I did for $100 and it ended up, I got a pretty, really nice Christmas card a few later because it could have belonged to a little boy and, you know, there was a single mom and he was, you know, brought me a really nice Christmas card you know what his puppy was doing, you know? And to Aww. me, it, so you can't always make money on everything. And I think the problem with, our profession at this point is the corporations have moved in. and That started about the 1990s and, and they're very cookbook formula. You have to do this, this and this and you can't vary from it. And anytime you bring a, and I uh, believe me, I'm about free enterprise and I'm about competition. But in the end, you think about it, if you have a if you have stockholders, they have to get paid. You know, you have a, a tier system of, of bureaucrats above the veterinarian. They have to get paid. So prices just have to go up. And that's just the way it is you know when you're dealing with that kind of a uh, you know a return versus you know through the 70s the 50s 60s 70s even in the 80s veterinarians were very pretty highly you know uh, thought of in their communities and we weren't necessarily rich by any means but we were really upper middle America you know we weren't poor by any means either and we had good social standing and I think a lot of that's gone I think you know um, I think people think a lot less of us, and they think us as, as, as money-grubbing doctors, you know, and mm-hmm. it's a real catch-22 for our profession, because once again, most animals don't have insurance that pays for things, um, unlike the human side, you know, but I mean, you know, you're looking at the average dentals now are going to be 1500 to $2,000, you know, when's the last time you spent $2,000 to have your teeth cleaned? You mm-hmm. know?
0: Yeah, I think now, it I is really a, it's really a systematic problem and it's it's so deeply rooted i think it's it's a really hard thing to change so i think it's really admirable that you're trying to make a change in that because it is it's just so hard to do anything as one person
1: yeah, well, I think there's more people out there doing things the way I do them than you think. They just don't their heads they keep their heads down because they, you know I'm a I'm a target for the board. I'm a target for mm-hmm. for the AHA type hospital doctors to write me up, and and they write me up on a pretty regular basis. Now, once again, I've never been accused of malpracticing. and I've never been you know they don't like my notes. They, they always they, you should do more you know because my because uh, once again. I, you know like i know for a fact like a good surgeon over at a very predominant uh hospital here in denver metro um, their, their bone guys may do two surgeries or, you know, their board certified people may do two surgeries in a day, you know, and mm-hmm. I'll do 20 in a day. I, I, I think I did five explorers just the other day in one day, you know, and that's on top of other things. Um, so I don't know, you know, it's like, I don't have time to, to call people and spend an hour on the phone with them. I don't have time to write, you know, a book on this procedure, but I put all the important stuff in there. What kind of suture, what, you know, pattern I use those kind of things. Um, and, you know, the, the board one once again the boards more and more want you to be more and more like human doctors um, and you have to have people now sign off on everything you know we just used to have one release form now we have like three different release forms you know mm-hmm. and, and it's not about protecting the consumer I don't care what they say it's about protecting our butts you know it's all about mm-hmm. legal mumbo-jumbo well and if you put it in there then they have no recourse you know I'm I'm a big believer in consent. You talk to the person, you say, look, this is what I've done in the past. This is what I think I might be able to help you with. Um, You know, this may may be the first time I did the surgery. I'll give it my best shot. Do you understand that? Yes. Okay. There we go. Move forward.
0: Yeah. I think the number one thing is communication. I mean, we at the animal law firm, we deal with a lot of malpractice cases. And so many of the clients say that if They had just been informed. If they had just been communicated with, then they wouldn't have had a problem with it, or at least they would have understood. But a lot of the time, doctors nowadays, they just they go through they go through the forms and then they they don't inform the client. And I think that's that's a big issue. So I think. It's no, really no, cool it's a, that you prioritize that.
1: I think it's a huge issue. I think that the only time you get in trouble, 99% of the time you get in trouble, there's always the Karens of the world. I just found out what a Karen was recently. <laughs> <laughs> old school. There's uh-huh. always the Karens of the world where no matter what you do, they're not going to be happy. But yeah. in the, and the vast majority of people, if you just tell them, you know, where you stand, what you can do, what you can't do, what you're willing to try to do. Um, and if you're honest with them, I really do find like honesty is the best policy. And quite frankly, you know, when, when I've screwed up, I've, I tell people, you know, I say, man, I made a mistake on that. You know, and uh, and those aren't the people that sue you. Those aren't the people that write you to the state board. You know, they understand uh, for the most part. So,
0: yeah, uh, definitely. So how you said that you teach overseas, how are other countries receptive of of your teaching? Are they really welcoming to you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I get invited. I just, I'm invited by the Vet Association in Kosovo. So I'm going to be in Bulgaria in the fall lecturing at the uh, Dog Stress Conference. And uh, we're close enough to Kosovo at that point. It's a five-hour drive. So we can go over and work with the Vet Association there. Um, I mean I get requests all the time you know if I if I was rich I would just skip around the world and, and spend my time teaching <laughs> but, uh, I still got I still got to hold down fort here and uh, you know work here but uh, now I, I for the most part I think Mexico is probably where I've had the greatest impact on Yucatan Peninsula because I, you know I'm associated with like four different clinics down there um, and I call them the kids but you know kids that you know I've, I've known them for now 20 years you know um they've graduated mm-hmm. and they, they have their own practices uh dr tony down there with planned bed mexico they go out twice a month to villages and do spay neuter and stuff and they get you know i mean they get a certain month from the government different groups will raise money but the point is they're out there making a real difference in in, a, in mm-hmm. overpopulation and the health of those animals um and you know it's just uh it's good to see that kind of thing
0: yeah wow that's really cool um, is there anything you wish you had known when you began your organization?
1: <laughs> yeah, uh,
0: <laughs> well, you
1: know, I, I guess born anything, I just wish I was such an asshole at times. But you know, like, I I I, I, I just I you know my personality is the top type I always I always say you know like uh well my mom always said, you know we took fishing at one time at the bottom of the dam there was these holes in the bottom of the dam and there's was full of water and they were kind of wishing back and forth and, and the first thing he told me is whatever you do don't go up and, and you know stay out of those things because they could suck you down you could drown you know the first pond the little hole I came up in the rock I just put my arms together and jumped in it you know went down <laughs> came back up I didn't drown you know so that's mm-hmm. kind of my personality <laughs> and and that and then also I I don't know you, you sometimes you win more you know you attract more flies with with honey than you do with vinegar right um but I, i've been good at kicking indoors and not necessarily good at following up after that with uh making nice with people but i don't have a lot of respect for for hypocrites you know and i think that's the problem uh, i see the major humane organizations in this country as just being as hypocritical as hell the top eight humane humane groups well you take taking the top 10 they're worth they're worth you know well over a billion dollars you know and and yet people euthanize animals every day because they can't get proper vaccines. They can't get proper care. There's areas in the South where something like 86% of animals never see a veterinarian in their whole life. You know, so I think we've just done a horrible job. And my thing is, like, I understand maybe why the veterinary profession doesn't address all these. I personally think they should be involved. I've always said, you know, this is the humane organizations. If you look at us it, like a, you know, a ship, you know, that's, that we can either be the captains of the ship or we can be drug behind like an anchor. And right now, for years, we've been drugged behind like an anchor. Um, and I think we need to take more control of that thing. And I don't think we should see nonprofits uh, as, as a threat to the profession. They're just not. Um, and at the same time, I think, you know, groups that have sitting on tens of millions of dollars in the bank, instead of building new shelters, they should be building full service veterinary hospitals, you know, in, in low income areas and really reaching out to the poor. And they don't do that because they not want to stay friends with the, with the AVMA. You know, they want to stay, they don't want to piss off the local veterinary association. And the truth is the kind of people that come to me, the vast majority aren't going to go to an aha hospital. They're just not, mm-hmm. you know, um, there's a real good article by, uh, uh, oh God, uh, he wrote, I'm trying to think of his name, Bob Christensen, I'm sorry, he wrote, he wrote the book Save Our, Tra- Our Strays back in the, probably it was in the early 80s maybe, um, and he just came out through the the BACA fund, um, it, it, the title of it is the veterinary profession serving all companion animals. Animal medical needs in America today, and, and it's really good statistics stuff. It's it's you, you know it's Bob Christian, uh, the Boca B O C A. Uh, Fund, Inc., you should, you know, Google that. And, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it really explains, you know, like 60%, only 40% of Americans can afford current and veterinary care. What I know for a fact is over the last three decades, every decade, we see a smaller percentage. There's more animals. So we see, you know, a lot of animals and we're busy, but we see a smaller percentage overall animals, dogs and cats in this country than we did the decade preceding, simply because we priced ourselves out of the market.
0: Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you for that recommendation. I'm sure hopefully our viewers check it out because I think that's really cool. Um, and I'm sure that it's hard to not burn some bridges when you're trying to fight the system. I mean, it's if you're actually trying to make a change, not everybody's going to be happy with it. So that's totally understandable.
1: Yeah, I mean, at the same time, we get, you know, quite a few very reputable hospitals refer stuff us all the time. And even at the, at the certain uh, at the CV one of the CBA meetings that you know they basically said you know it wasn't for plant pethood, we'd be having to kill a lot more animals than we do already you know
0: because mm-hmm.
1: uh, we are people's last stop you know and last chance and um, I feel like you know I feel like we have some pretty good people here in terms of the surgical abilities and and ability to do medicine
0: yeah that's awesome. So, what was the legal process to getting your organization started? Was it pretty smooth, or did you have to go through some road bumps? Or
1: no, that was real easy. Back, back. I mean, because we founded the nonprofit back in what I think we got our official first letter saying that we're we're okay as a nonprofit, like back in 1993 you know i think it's a much more expensive much harder now um but you know back in then you know it was and you know if we worked we out we were at a different location for 25 years and we never were even wrote grants or even brought up the nonprofit. we just kind of used it to subsidize things overseas uh off the off money donated from my for-profit you know and then uh, and then we'd help people out you know we just you know as people come in and say we don't have any money oh, okay we got someone to pay we never told them who would pay because it was basically me taking money out my right pocket and put it in my left pocket but you know <laughs> uh, it worked really good and then you know unfortunately once we got on tv we had that uh show on animal planet it was really hard for us because, you know, all of a sudden now the whole, all of America knew we had a nonprofit, you know? Mm People just—I mean, literally—we had people come drive in from like Chicago or or Virginia, and you know, drive and not even say they're coming, just show up on our on our front step, our front front porch step, and say, "Hey, we're here. Here's my dog. He got hit by a car three weeks ago. We've been to five vets. Can't afford any of them. And I got a dollar ninety-five left. Can you help us?" <laughs> you oh my know?
0: goodness! Yeah. <laughs>
1: so uh, we had a lot of those, you know. Uh, yeah. a, so those, you know, and. We still don't, aren't very good at writing grants. I've never been good about begging for money, but frankly, I, you know, my thing is the work, you know? Yeah. Um, so uh, we are going to try to open this, you know, we're going to try to do a 1.5 billion fundraiser in the near future, probably starting in this August, September. Uh, wow. We'll build a new facility up in Conifer. And let's see, I really want it state of the art. I want the latest and greatest of everything. Not that I'm going to know how to use it, but there are people around me <laughs> too. Uh, You know, uh, my wife is incredibly smart. and She graduated from one of the top universities in Europe, and she's so far ahead of us, it's ridiculous. But uh, you know, if she, she wants to start doing you know disc surgeries and things like that. Well, you need a good CT for that. So you know, we, we you know we've always been very well equipped for quote a spay neuter clinic, but we wanted to go to that next level and uh, and show kids. You know, they come from school. They like say come from different schools, hang out with us for a month, six weeks, whatever. We don't charge for any of our training. You can have all the latest equipment you can use, and then we'll show you how we do it without the equipment.
0: Yeah, wow. Well, let me know when you do that fundraiser. I'd love to let our viewers know and try to advertise it a little bit for you. Um, And would you mind mentioning what um, show or, I don't know, special you were on on Animal Planet? I I hadn't heard about that.
1: Uh, yeah, Dr. Jeff, Rocky Mountain vet for eight, okay. eight eight years. We were number one on Animal Planet uh, for the last eight years. Our our, our last season just showed uh, about a month and a half ago, two months ago. And, you know, we're not t- technically canceled, but we're not, you know, renewed. And quite frankly, it, it was a great experience and it gave me a format in some ways. Um, it also got me a lot of punches from, from people who didn't, didn't like what we were doing. <laughs> Uh, but having said all that you know i i, I would i would do it again uh, you know i don't feel a need to continue it a whole lot from the standpoint of uh, we we're getting everything's you know, if you're on tv you're rich well truth is you know they, they come to you you're nobody and you get on there and, and they they're they're taking all the risk you know so and they're mm-hmm. about making money that's the american way nothing wrong with that but in the end we we're getting basically like ten thousand dollars a show so you or you know, twenty thousand dollars a show so you say you do 10 shows That's two hundred thousand dollars well we're we at that time, we were doing $4 million a year as a low cost clinic. Now that $4 million is $20 million in the other clinic easily. So but you know, the point is, we're doing high volume, we're making decent money. And so $200,000 is a drop in the bucket, you know, when it comes to 400 million, 4 million. But then on top of that, for me to for me to film something may take three or four hours well that's Mm -hmm. one surgery in three or four hours with filming versus i could do four or five surgeries in that same time period you know so so we didn't we didn't get ahead at all financially
0: i'm sure yeah i Uh, mean the the amount of time it takes out of your day is definitely it cancels out (laughs) yeah
1: filming is very time consuming. you know we had worked with some great people and i'll tell you another thing about i think the one thing i learned is it really it made me kind of sad when it comes to the uh you know, the, the, basically the, 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 live kind of shows on TV, but so much of it is fake. You know, we didn't fake anything. And I'm, I'm, a, I was adamant about that occasionally, mm-hmm. like, okay, we might miss a shot for, of an x-ray. So we'd, go, we'd go pretend we're doing an x-ray because yeah. we really did one, you know, so it's not like we were making it up that we, you know, um, but so many of the, so, the so-called, you know, reality shows have a lot less reality than you think to them.
0: Very oh, depressing. I'm sure.
1: Very depressing to find that out.
0: <laughs> yeah, they can they can cut it and edit it however they want. Yep, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure it wasn't hard to find supporters for your organization. Then, given given that and the amount of publicity you, you got to have, did you have a lot of people wanting to volunteer? And do you accept volunteers, or how how does that work?
1: Well, we're, we hope we hope to in the near future. We going to do. We're just really short-handed right now with COVID. You know, and we we, we basically switched over to 100 nonprofit right before covid so you know uh so we've only been 100 non-profit here for basically three years you know mm-hmm. and so it was, it was a rough transition, obviously. And, and we had to close a few times and like everybody else dealing with it. But yes, we're starting now. We've always done tours for kids. We still have some kids coming through. Um, we have a, students that come out and hang out. I got another student coming next month for I think a month. Um, so it, it, we are going to be having more volunteers. Certainly once we move, I have a, a new person hired that's going to be in charge of our PR. And he, he, he understands computers. I don't. And he understands <laughs> So we've always had adoptions. Like we don't put animals to sleep. Uh, if a dog comes in with a broken leg, say the owner doesn't want it, or they don't want to pay for it or whatever, they'll sign them over to us. We fix the leg and we adopt them. So we usually adopt in, around 300 animals a year that have come through the facility, ex parvo animals, whatever, you know, um, that mm-hmm. we try to find them homes. So,
0: Gotcha. Very cool. Okay. So how do you recommend people find your organization? Um, do you, like through your website? Is that the easiest yeah. Um.
1: Yeah, we're working on several different things. Once again, I'm media inept, but uh, Plant International has a, uh, a, a Facebook page. It's Plant International org for our website, and we just now have someone that's actually starting to update it. You know, it's always behind. Um, the problem is, once again, we're down. We had 11 beds at one time. Now, at at, at 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 the end of COVID, we ended up we have four and a half beds. You know, so um, we don't have time to do much anything <laughs> but work. And, yeah. Uh, but we, we got some people, and the people who were in charge of my adoption were great people, and they were really caring and did a great job with Optimalist, but they were computer illiterate like me, so then we didn't get a lot of publicity for the things we do. So we're trying to we're trying to build that up, and, and it's just going to take a little time. We will, we will be much more active uh, than we have been in the past that way.
0: Definitely. Very cool. Okay, well, given that, uh, I think we'll take a little break here and then come back, and then we'll talk some more about um your organization and your goals and everything. So if that's cool with you. Okay, cool. We will be back. Okay. We are back with Dr. Young. Uh we want we're gonna get into a little bit more of like the heart of your organization here. I I just I want to know what has been the most rewarding part of your work so far.
1: I don't know. You know, I think um I think seeing things in Mexico change. I think working with students uh and then having them go out and it's not I mean, they have practices, they make good money at their practices, but yet they have that social conscience. And I think, you know, if, if I've done anything, um, I, I don't take credit for the work they do. I take credit for starting a fire, which they keep, you know, keep it going, you know? Um, and I, I think, you know, we, we've really been responsible for spending and neutering little tens of thousands of animals in the Yucatan. And more and more groups copy what we do because there are vets that we've trained um, I mean, currently, we have an international training center outside of Cancun, basically it's by Playa de Karma at Puerto Morales area. Uh, we train veterinarians from all over the world. At one point, we had seven veterinarians there and several more for South America, a couple more from uh, northern Mexico and a couple of them from Europe, you know? And we, I think right now we have like 12 French students there. So we have people come from all over the world to train there. And I think to me, that's the greatest accomplishment because it's not that I'm there helping them. You know I built a facility for them to use, um, but we have really well-trained vets there. Uh, and, you know, our, our vet students coming out of the University of Yucatan will have hundreds of surgeries under their belt before they even graduate, You know. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, that's because there's a lot more street animals down there, Yeah. Um, and, but still it's, uh, you know, it's just, it's the network that we're building and uh, we're, we're doing, trying to do the same thing in Eastern Europe and a few other places around the world is really try to reach out to the, you know, young vets that want to make a difference.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's really cool. It's like you get to work with the people that really are in it to make a difference rather than just becoming a vet for the money. And I think that's really cool.
1: And i don't know why anyone thinks they can they, they, they become a bet for the money is the right thing to do you want to be, make money become a banker you know yeah- uh-huh. you know I, mean? I don't know there's so many other things you can do that require a lot less work and and a lot less pressure all the time i may, maybe they feel pressure in a different way i don't know um i do i do think our where our profession is i mean we have more and more my class was the first class in 1989 had more females than males and since then there's more and, more. and so let's, even around the world, that's the same thing. The vast majority of students are graduating far more females than males. And I think the one thing that's done for our profession is actually infused some, some compassion and some mm-hmm. caring into it. And I think that's another reason why we have so much depression and suicide, because all that compassion and caring is being hit with a wall. And that wall is about money and, and production
0: yeah it's it's pretty disheartening sometimes i'm sure what is one thing your organization has done or that i guess something that you didn't expect that you would do when you started this
1: you know it, it's that's the thing like i never none of this was planned you know it's like mm-hmm. i i i started lecturing um spay usa esther meckler um uh, who's an amazing woman um people like Jean at Atow with the montana montana spainer task force esther meckler uh, with Spay USA, and she started the Fixed by Five movement, the Fixed Cats, you know, it's mostly about sitting around cats, but Fixed by Five, which the AVMA has now endorsed. I mean, the, the people that, is, to me, have made the greatest dis- difference in animals' lives in, in this country are not veterinarians, and I'm thinking like, why isn't that, why aren't more veterinarians standing up for what's right, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But it's those kind of people, and I think, you know, being asked to speak at, of the first conference back in Boston, um about Spain, uter Spain usa you know uh, and that just was a jumping board all of a sudden i'm speaking internationally and just going all over the place um so i you know that was just a total surprise to me like i didn't get it you know uh,
0: yeah
1: it was just common sense and yet because i was speaking and i and somewhere along the line i got someone coined me as a you know the the, the, the modern-day father of mobile spay-neuter I had a school bus and we just went around and did spay-neuter have <laughs> school buses uh, I have a school bus for a while so I don't know the, the publicity was weird to me because I hadn't been around a lot of humane type people you know um before vet school and uh I don't know they they just clung on to the fact that you could make a difference by simply doing one simple thing spay-neuter
0: yeah I'm sure um, it is hard to kind of adapt to the publicity of it all, but I think it is really cool that you can get the word out to everyone and make it more of a widespread thing, which is ho- what I'm hoping to do a little bit, help you out a little bit.
1: <laughs> oh, and I hear you. And it, it all makes a difference. That's the point. You know, I, I don't know. People, a lot of people think I, you know, have this ego and I want to get on TV. That was a total fluke getting on TV. And I, mm-hmm. I, and I had real mixed emotions about it, you know, um, Animal Planet had the first show Alameda East uh, I, I think I, I think it was called emergency bets it was it was here in Alameda East here in Denver and then they kind of got out of the vet business at some point and then dr. Pohl and some of these other shows started showing up on other stations and they just sent a communicator around the world and say hey uh, we're looking for vets. We want to do get back in the vet show business, you know. And, and a group uh, double act out of England called me. And they, I'd been to Australia and lectured there, and they saw one of my evident in my lecture. I didn't know it was even being taped, but anyway, um, and they called me up and said, "Yeah, you know, look, you're kind of a character, you know. We'd like to do a TV show. We're looking for someone to do a TV show. Would you be interested?" I said, "I don't know." I said, "You know, look at my Facebook page. I'm pretty political. I say what's on my mind. I cuss like a drunken sailor." I said, "You know, so you know." And, and i said so i don't know, get back from me if you think you're still interested literally like the next day they call back said, we'll be there next week to start filming
0: <laughs> okay wow.
1: yeah. So and i didn't get a lawyer i did everything on a handshake and that was a big mistake believe me but ignoring all that you know it wasn't something like mm-hmm. that you know and i and some of the remarks that you know that from vets that just like you know well oh, you're just in it for the money or i don't know it just cracks me like i guarantee you I make far. I make a hundred thousand dollars a year. I know for a fact I can walk down the street and get a job starting for two hundred thousand dollars a year in a blink of an eye. You know.
0: Oh yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So it's uh, and I have I have very very advanced surgical skills. So there's not a whole lot I can't do soft tissue wise, and I feel very comfortable. So, you know, I was like, I do this because. First off, I don't know if anybody's even worth more than $100,000 a year. So I'm kind of about half socialist that way, I guess. But in the end, you know, I, I, my, my, I make my money on my properties. I've always bought. I've never rented a place. I've always bought buildings and, you know, made bed hospitals. And, and that's how I've made my money, not, not by the physical work I do every
0: day. Yeah. Yep. That's really awesome. So let's see. Have you faced any big challenges that you had to deal with? To
1: me, there's, there are no roadblocks in life. It's just, you know, whether you just jump over them and move around them. I mean, I've had cancer, I've had three cancers already, two, one, seven, and beat that, had a lung lung taken out, lung cancer taken out of B-cell lymphoma. Um, and I pretty much worked almost every day. It's, pretty, it's rare. I'm occasionally, you know, when you hit that second day or third day after chemo, you vomit a lot. So, and but once I got a hold of CBD, I stopped vomiting for the most part and, and mm-hmm. work. I don't, and I, I, I mean, that those were challenges, I guess, in one sense, physicals challenges. Um, I don't know, you know, it's, 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 I think my di- this disappointment in the profession, you know, that I just think we should be doing more. And, you know, and, and I was ignorant as if anybody else, I mean, I, you know, I didn't believe animals had feelings and things like that, you know, growing up and, um, and, but I feel like, you know, kind of, you, you went through vet school, you had to learn something about that. You had to learn something about pain receptors and all that. And yet we ignore what, what's obvious in front of us, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I really do think we're very schizophrenic, you know, and, and I understand kind of why the, why the vet profession is afraid of that, too, because if you think about it, I mean, if you're a large animal person, you don't care because basically every state basically says whatever the standard is, is dictated by the industry, which is horrible. You know, so if you want to beat something to death and everybody wants to beat it to death, then that's OK, because that's the industry standard. That's pretty mm-hmm. much worse in this country. But, you know, with small animals, it's like, OK, I mean, we tried to pass a law a few years back saying that dogs and cats were a special type of personal property. And if you malpractice that led to the death of an animal, then you could be sued for up to, I think it was $10,000. And you would have thought somebody was raping babies because the vet profession came out and said, This will ruin us. We can't do this. It's going to drive up prices. And it's like, you know, but they got to prove you did something wrong, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know, you know, it's like it, it never passed, clearly. But having said that, you know, our prices have gone up logarithmically anyway, but we have no there's no penalty for us. You know, I mean, if you just do something horrible, uh, then you might have you get a smack on your hands or have to pay a fine or maybe even get your license for three months. But, you know, if you go down and read some of the things that doctors have written up for, you'll see the same doctors written up for drug abuse and alcoholism over and over and over again. And it's always, you know, bad, bad boy don't do that or bad, bad girl won't do that. You mm-hmm. know, take a class, you know, and, and I don't know, you know, it just seems like we want our cake and eat it too.
0: Yeah. It's like, where do you, where do you draw the line in those situations? It's, it's really hard.
1: Yeah, and the real question, I think the real question is, it's a catch 22 for our society too, from the standpoint, okay, you can't afford the prices, but yet you see these, you know, uh, you know about CAT scans and all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, you if you're if a doctor doesn't offer your animal CAT scan because you got a dollar ninety five, does that make him a bad doctor? Well, no, because you had a dollar ninety five wasn't going to happen, you know, uh, and I don't know where you find that balance. And that's why it gets back to that informed consent. you got to be able to talk to people about it and say this is this is ideal. You know, this is the gold standard. If you're not, you know, you're you're down at the aluminum standard, you know, down the other <laughs> spectrum. So you know, I mean, we'll do what we can, you know, and I and I think that's the way we have to approach it. You know, that the, the board, state boards more and more are saying, well, this is the standard, this is the standard. Well, you know, yeah, it is a standard for the top of the line people that have lots of money, but you know, to do nothing or to allow an animal to die because you do nothing, to me, is just is atrocious and it's wrong. And at the same time, we have to do a better job of. It. I, I know for. for. For a fact, in this country of ours, and this is the greatest country in the world for I'm concerned, but I know for a fact people don't have the same level of medical care from the top to bottom. If you're rich, you get a little bit extra than if you're poor. And it's the same thing with animals. And I'm sorry, that's just the way it has to be, no matter what the vet board says.
0: Yeah. I'm sure that uh, a lot of people just think of it like, like you said, how th- a lot of vets are so compassionate, but they just, they can't think of a way around, I don't know, the bigger corporations, but I think there's, there's ways out of it. I don't know.
1: There is. and it, it, It's, it's like people say, you know, I mean, I don't know how many people I come to come to me with, for FHOs, you know, femoral head osteotomies, just simply because you know, they've been offered a $10,000, $12,000 total hip replacement, you know, and it's like, how many people can afford that, you know, in all honesty, and and Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, FHOs work every bit as good, and I've done FHOs, 165 pound animals, and if you go to the human literature, you'll find that humans have FHOs in third world countries, because they can't afford hip, uh, total hip replacements, you know, I don't, they still do it today, but I know they have in the past, you know, so, and we walk on two legs, not four, you know, so, I you know, there's a lot of things that just because the standard is way up here at the top of the mountain doesn't mean that you can't find something down the valley that is just as good heat.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, Kind of on that, on this topic of just like the struggles that you face, like after all of your work, do you have any tips for making the world a better place or tips for people in your industry?
1: I, I think the key is in my, and once again, the, my whole goal before I die is to have, the conifer clinic opened up for training students and veterinarians new grads whatever to show them options and i think the more people we can train um, and the more we can get that out and i think in the end society has to demand more from the vet profession in terms of low-cost stuff and mainly from the humane societies. Humane societies are going to hire veterinarians in the end, so it's good for our profession. If the humane societies actually open up more clinics in one sense, you know, and it doesn't make us a sellout as, as a profession because we're going to go work for a non-profit, but I think we need we need the big groups, you know. Um, they're sitting on tens of millions of dollars to be opening full-service clinics, you know, and I'm talking full-service like, you know, FHOs and knee surgeries and things like that. Uh, we do a lot of mixing with words, you know, like, well, uh, we don't we don't kill healthy, adoptable animals. We'll define healthy and adoptable. Mm-hmm. You know, I I know for a fact certain groups of euthanized dogs that come in with torn ACLs because they don't have they don't they're not gonna pay to have the ACL. They can't get they can't recoup the money. So they're gonna euthanize it because that's not adoptable. Well, of course it's adoptable, you know, and they should do the surgery ahead of time. Yeah. Uh, but you know, a lot of that does not happen.
0: Yeah, it's very sad. Um, so, like on the topic of of your your new clinic, what are the biggest things you're looking forward to in expanding your organization? Is that um, the main thing, or are you wanting to travel internationally more, or is? Yeah. Um, how's that going to work? That's,
1: I mean, that's part of it. We have, I have at least two vets that I know will be starting to be this next spring and we're hoping to be open by next spring. And, and, uh, my wife is, is an incredibly talented surgeon. She does TPLOs and she does elbow surgeries, really complicated stuff, but she can do anything with plates or, or pins. I mean, um, I really do believe she's as good as 90% of the, the specialists around, you know, but she's just that kind of person. Uh, she's taking all these different classes and stuff, and she's just really good at what she does. So once again, we want to be able to show people how you can do some of these things and be a little cheaper about them. Uh, but yeah, still do them right, you know, um, but it's tough, you know, because at the same time, she could, go, she could go do, you know, a TPL every other day or two a day, you know, and maybe six a week and make a lot more money should make it working for me so, yeah you know and, and that's the point you know we, so much of society is driven by money but at some point you got to be happy too you know mm-hmm. and i think i think it's trying to find that balance i want to be able to pay I, I, my goal for the nonprofit is to be able to pay maybe the highest pay doctors, maybe 150,000 a year. I just don't see how a nonprofit can do much better than that, um, mm-hmm. you know, and still help the people that need to help. Now, you know, maybe we get lucky and somebody leaves me 10 million dollars, and we can invest it and we can do it that way. But you know, so far, we basically my goal for the nonprofit has always been the same. We have to make our payroll and pay for the the building and everything out of the money we make. our clients and anything that's donated above and beyond that goes to specialized stuff better equipment uh mobile spay new stuff subsidizing specific people and helping groups overseas you know with suture and things like that so um Mm -hmm. I, i really think most nonprofits should be able to raise enough money in the work they do to cover at least the cost of their payroll which is always the biggest cost for everything
0: oh yeah definitely i'm sure so kind of wrapping up a little bit, what is the best way for our listeners to support you?
1: Well, you got $10 million sent it my way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, you know, I, if you want to volunteer, easiest, it, it, trying
1: to get through our phones is next to impossible. Um, but you know, you can, you can shoot me a, a, an email. I, I'm at Dr. Neuter, D-R-N-E-U-T-R, Dr. Neuter at hotmail.com. I'm on Facebook. Um, we're we're trying to launch a new Facebook page because personal Facebook can only do 5,000. So we're trying to work from one that's, you know, that does, uh, I think it's, uh, can do more, it's more commercial type Facebook page. We do have a PlantFit International Facebook page. We do have International.org. Right now, I mean, I get on there maybe once every two or three days. So I'm inundated with stuff because I'm just too busy working, but um, stopping in, you know, donations are always good. We're going to try to get back to as soon as we move our our goal next summer is to be doing one or two outings every month in low cost Bay neuter in small communities around Colorado. We've been to been in a few places this year um, a couple of different places already but you know and we do a lot of work down Sox Place which is a homeless shelter downtown Denver so I think we're going to try to set something up there for August and we can always use extra help you know and it, it's not that hard I mean most of what I do I could teach a monkey to do to be honest with you.
0: okay great yeah that sounds awesome um so is there anything you'd like our audience to know that i haven't thought to ask you yet or any remaining thoughts
1: oh i just i think you know i mean obviously if they're listening to you they must care about animals and you gotta you gotta look at the big picture and you gotta understand that you know maybe your doctor is is not giving you the the gold standard, but maybe because you can't afford the gold standard. I think they as long as they explain that to you, there's nothing wrong with cutting a few corners. Uh, It it, it all should be about how the how the outcome is, you know. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think when you give money to nonprofits, you need to ask them, what are you doing with it? You know, like, uh, do, do you offer low cost you know, care for animals and what happens with it? You know, when a little old lady dies and she leaves her cat to a friend and they don't want it, you know, do you take that in or do you just euthanize it, you know, and maybe it's a 12 year old cat with a really bad mouth. You know what do you euthanize? I'm not a no-kill person, believe me, and I don't believe in no-kill. I think it's cruel and inhumane. I've never been to a no-kill shelter that I had any respect for, quite frankly, and I've been to a lot of them around the world. But you know, there's got to be a balance there too. You know, yeah. Uh, so if you can't, if you can't give long-term health with a good idea of having a good home. And or if it's aggression, I, I'll use the for aggression every time because uh, it's just too complicated to treat those kind of issues. Uh, but in the vast in on the vast majority of cases, you know, we fix everything and get them back out. We don't age is not a disease, so we don't care if it's a 12, 13, 14-year-old animal, we'll still find it at home. Uh, but you know, you how we give, if we give differently, if our donations stop going to the big groups and go to the small local groups that are doing the most work, you know, the kind of the, the people that are beating the bushes. Um, I think you'll get, you'll see a lot more bang for your buck and you'll see a bigger difference in the animal care.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think that's good advice to, to ask nonprofits about where their money is going because they are required to be able to list off that, that kind of thing to be certified as a nonprofit. So that's a really good way to um, judge the reliability of a nonprofit really. So that's really cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I feel like I learned so much and I think it was really helpful. So I, I, I appreciate you giving your time.
1: Glad to be here. Glad to do it and have a great day.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye. That was such an inspiring interview. I learned so much and I hope you did too. If you were moved as much as I was and want to support this amazing organization, please visit our website at theanimallawfirm.com and check out our merch page as all profits from merchandise go towards supporting the guests on the show. Or follow the links to donate to this organization directly. If you want to support the podcast, please share us on social media and give us a five-star review. Anything helps. Thanks again for tuning in. Until next time, fellow underdogs.